If you want to go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to be there in just a few minutes. Isaiah chapter 1. I want to uh, echo and thank Russell for his comments. What, what a blessing it is that we can come together as a family, united by the love of Christ, and encourage each other um, to know that we, we don't have to go through this life as troubled as it is, like Roger talked about this morning. To know that we don't have to go through this alone uh, is such an encouragement and such a blessing that we can be here together. One of the things that we have been doing throughout this year is trying to encourage each other as a group to finish what was started. The Major League Baseball started, the the regular season started about two weeks ago. And if you've been keeping up with it at all, the the Tampa Bay Rays were uh, on a hot streak to start off. So um, you can look, this was something I I saw on Thursday as I was looking up uh, different teams that have had undefeated records to start the season. And so uh, the Atlanta Braves in 1982 started off 13-0. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers in 1987 started off 13-0. and When I put this into my PowerPoint, the Rays were 12-0, and so you can see I kind of put over 13. They eventually made it to 13-0 and before losing their, their first game, and, and uh, now they are 14-2. and But if you look uh, at the Braves, they started off hot, 13-0. and But the result was they didn't even make it to the championship. They didn't finish what they started. The Milwaukee Brewers, the same. They didn't even make it into the playoffs. And so then we can deduce or think about what's going to happen with the Tampa Bay Rays and their undefeated start, will they finish? Thinking about us, it doesn't matter how we start if we don't finish. Uh, And so I think it is a, a good thing that we are thinking through finishing what was started. What does it look like to finish what was started? That's what matters like Roger talked about this morning. Isaiah is where we're going to be tonight, spending most of our time there. Isaiah was a prophet to the nation of Judah during the reigns of Uzziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He had a hard job because God's people had come so far in their sin that God was ready to give them up into captivity so that they might learn their lesson and return to him. Listen to how God describes his people in Isaiah chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Pretty harsh words right out of the gate for Isaiah. The people are described as rebellious, sinful, laden with iniquity. They are offspring of evildoers. They are children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and despise the Holy One of Israel. It says they are utterly estranged. This is the message Isaiah is called to deliver. And for 39 chapters at the beginning of the book, 39 long chapters, Isaiah delivers messages of judgment and destruction and oppression. Not only against Judah, but against Babylon and Assyria and Ethiopia and Egypt and surrounding nations. You can imagine people's thoughts towards Isaiah when most of the words out of his mouth seem to be negative and about judgment and destruction. 
He also probably seemed a little bizarre. In chapter 20 of his book, God commands him to loose the sackcloth from his waist and to take the sandals off of his feet. And he's going to walk around naked for three years as a sign that Egypt will be led away naked and barefoot. So not only is Isaiah speaking negative words, now he's walking around naked. There's extra biblical thought that Isaiah died by being sawn in half. Now, I can't prove that. There um, is a reference in Hebrews chapter 11 to, to many things that the people of God have gone through throughout time. One of those was being sawn in two, and there is thought that that is a reference to the death of Isaiah. We don't have a biblical account of Isaiah's death, so I can't say that's a fact. But based on the way he lived, it's, it's not hard to imagine that many people wanted him dead. Through all of this, none of which came by his own choice, but he was called by God, sent by God to do this. How was Isaiah able to finish what was started? How was he able to keep going through all of the hard things he was called to say and the challenging things he was told to do and all the persecution and ridicule he no doubt had to endure? How was he able to finish what was started? Well, I think we can find the answer in Isaiah chapter 6, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight, Isaiah chapter 6. In chapter 6, Isaiah has an encounter with God. He has a vision of the Lord. He sees God in all of his glory, and I believe this is fundamental in his faith that endured. How was he able to finish what was started? He had seen the Lord and had an understanding of the authority and power and love of the king on his throne. What you and I think about God matters. A.W. Tozer put it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. As we as a group here seek to encourage each other to finish what was started, this is something we need to give consideration to. What we think about God and who he is will shape every decision we make. It will shape every word we say, every opinion we make, every stance we take. What we think about God influences the way we worship, the way we pray, and the way we approach his word. When you look around, not just this community, but around the world, and see so many different types of churches all claiming to worship the God of the Bible, but doing so in very different ways, it's not uncommon for the question to come up, are, are we worshiping the same God? Which, in all honesty, is a legitimate question. You can see Christians living very different lifestyles from each other in, in, the way, in terms of the way they use their money and the way they speak and the way they treat others, and you wonder, are we following the same Christ? Again, a legitimate question. How can we follow the same God and yet our lives look so different from each other in terms of the way we worship and the way we live? Well, I think it all comes back to what comes to our minds when we think about God. What we think about God matters. And so tonight, I want us to encounter God with Isaiah. I want us to jump in his vision and see if we can understand a little better what he saw and how that was able to help him finish what was started. And my encouragement to you as we do this to try and get all the preconceived notions you have about God out of your mind. Try to clear your head and picture this as if you are encountering God for the first time. 
So let's jump in. Let's start with the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So picture this. You're in the temple, the magnificent temple that Solomon built. There's beautiful artwork engraved on the walls. It's overlaid with gold. You see the lampstand. You see the table of showbread. But there's something different here. There's a throne. Read through the instructions to Moses on how to organize the tabernacle, which would eventually become the temple, and you'll find no mention of a throne In the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat and the cherubim's wings came together on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a place that was referred to as the mercy seat where it was said that the presence of God dwelt. But this is different here in Isaiah chapter 6. This is a throne that is described as high and lifted up. And you can see this in a couple different ways. Maybe the throne is up in the air. Maybe this is somewhat of a a roofless temple that we're standing in, and the throne is high above us. Maybe it also relates to the size of this throne. This throne is huge because in it sits the creator of the universe. He is high and lifted up in this impressive throne because he is powerful, he is glorious, he is majestic. We are tiny in comparison to this throne. We are insignificant in comparison to the Lord on his throne. In fact, it says the robe he is wearing is so big that it's filling the entire temple around us. And so that's, that's the appearance of the throne. Around the throne are flying seraphim. Now, the description of these beings is that they have six wings. With two, they cover their face, and with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they fly. Now, if you or I saw one of these beings, I, I have a, no doubt that we'd probably be running away in fear. I don't suspect these are little bird creatures flying around. I see them, you know, probably human being size, maybe bigger. I don't know. Uh, But no doubt these are fierce and and somewhat terrifying. These seraphim are flying around the throne, calling to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These beings that you and I might run from are in awe and devoted worship of the king on his throne. And as these seraphim are calling to each other, it says that the foundations of the thresholds are shaking. The floor is unsteady. It's like an earthquake is happening and smoke is filling the room. Now, if you're dreaming this, you might wake up with your heart pounding, maybe a little sweaty. You might call it a nightmare. But but we need to remember, this this is no nightmare. This is the God who created us. This is the one we will stand before someday, and he is going to determine where we will spend eternity. This is our king on his throne. This is reality. 
Emotions we might use to describe our thoughts in this scene are, are scared, maybe frightened, amazed for sure, maybe fearful. And from Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, he fills those same emotions for he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I don't deserve to be here is what he's saying. I am lost. My people are lost. Death is what I deserve. I am unworthy to be in the presence of this king. This is Isaiah's initial reaction when he encounters God and should be fundamental in our current understanding of God as well. We don't deserve to be here. We are lost. Death is what we deserve. We are unworthy to be in the presence of such a mighty, perfect, holy king. Our thoughts of God must start here. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I begin to understand my place in this world. I begin to know who I am and how I should live when I see the Lord in his awesome power like Isaiah and learn to fear him appropriately. The world is filled with people living lives without enough fear of the Lord. When we worship God the way we want to, the way we enjoy, the way that seems right to us and ignore what he has said, then we are in need of more fear of the Lord. When I live the way I want to, when I make decisions based on what seems fun or what I think is right or what everyone else is doing and ignore what God wants, then I am in need of more fear of the Lord. Abraham understood this concept of the fear of the Lord and how that affects everything that we do. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has an encounter with God as well. In this section, he's asked to take Isaac, his only son, the son he had waited 25 long years for, and he's told to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you. Now, if you're like me, you, you cringe at this thought, at this request, at this command of God. How could God ask Abraham to do this? But this question in my heart, this doubt, really stems from a lack of understanding of who God is and a proper fear of him. If God is who the Bible says he is, creator of the universe, all-powerful, able to take away my life in an instant, in control of my eternal destiny, a king high and lifted up on his throne, if this is who Yahweh is, then he can ask me to do whatever he wants. He is God. He is the builder. He is creator. He is in control. And since I am his creation, it is my obligation and duty to do what he says. End of story. No excuses. If God were to tell me today, take Napoleon, your only son, and offer him up as a burnt offering, then it, then it would be my responsibility to do what he says. Would it be easy? Would I be able to do it? I don't know. But if that was a requirement to get to heaven, then there, was, there would be nothing we could do about it. God is creator. What he says goes. He makes the rules. Abraham understood this, and so he rose early the next morning and takes his son on a few days' journey 
until they come to the place where he was directed. And there he builds an altar. He lays his son on top of it. He is determined to do what the Lord has asked him to do. Abraham understood the fear of the Lord. He knew the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, just like Isaiah had seen. But the beautiful thing is that neither of these two stories end where we left them. There is more to the story of Isaiah in chapter 6. There is more to this story of Abraham and Isaac here in Genesis chapter 22. There is definitely foundational to our understanding of God must be fear and respect, but there is still more about our God that we need to see. So back in Isaiah chapter 6, after Isaiah has declared, woe is me for I am lost, it then says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Can you imagine this transition? Isaiah has just exclaimed, woe is me, I am lost, I, I don't deserve to be here, I'm going to die, I think is the thought he is expressing there. And now he hears the words in response, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This was for nothing he did. He did nothing to earn this. He did not deserve this. God simply sends the seraphim to do this for him. The king in all of his power and glory and authority sitting high on his throne gives to Isaiah grace and mercy and love. Isaiah was very much correct earlier. He was lost. He was unclean. He shouldn't have been there in the presence of the king. And yet God makes him clean. His sin is atoned for. His brokenness is repaired. No doubt this entire scene would have taken the people's minds back to temple worship. Walking into the tabernacle and eventually the temple, there are essentially two main rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. And only once a year does the high priest get to go into the presence of the Lord in the most holy place. But Isaiah is not a high priest. And that once a year, the high priest would bring a sacrifice for the people, but also for himself. So Isaiah is not a high priest, and he does not have a sacrifice to offer. He shouldn't be there in the presence of the king in the temple. But instead of being struck down, he is cleansed. He is cleansed by God himself. Flashback to Abraham and Isaac's story in Genesis 22 where we left them. Isaac is laid on the altar. Abraham has the knife raised ready to slay his son as directed by a command of the Lord. When an angel of the Lord stops him and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so Abraham unbinds Isaac. They find a ram that the Lord had provided for them behind them, and they offer that ram as a sacrifice instead. And Abraham calls the name of that place, the Lord will provide, and it becomes a saying that on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This story conjures up many questions. Why did this even take place? What was the point of it all? 
Well, one example we give from Abraham in this is what true fear of the Lord looks like. If God is the God of the Bible, like we mentioned, then any demand of his is expected to be followed. But throughout the Old Testament, we find that God does not approve of child sacrifice. He kicks the Canaanites out of the land because they were sacrificing their children. He eventually kicks the Israelites out of the land because they are sacrificing their children. So why did he ask Abraham to do this? As we think through this story, it's impossible not to feel for Abraham. What heartbreak he must have felt that the son he had waited so long for and had grown to love was going to be taken from him. And not only taken from him, Abraham was the one that was going to have to kill him to watch him die at his hands. How could he possibly do this? And in those thoughts, our minds fast forward about 2,000 years. From the time of Abraham to the city of Jerusalem, where we see a man getting spit upon and beaten and a crown of thorns smashed on his head, carrying the wood he will be slain on up a mountain. We must recognize that when we see this man, Jesus, we are seeing a son. God the Father is with him in this moment, taking him up the mountain. The Father to offer his son as a sacrifice. What heartbreak he must have felt as he saw his son endure so much. He could have stopped it. God could have stopped it all. But he didn't. And he was right there and watched his son die. How could God possibly do this to his son? And in this, we see the true glory of our king. Though high and lifted up on his throne, he reached out to Isaiah with a coal to take away his guilt and atone for his sins, not because Isaiah deserved it, but because God loved him. Though fierce and awesome in his power, God then reached out to the world to take away our guilt and atone for our sins with the blood of his son, not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. On the mount of the Lord, he provides because he loves. The plan was never to have Abraham offer Isaac or Bradley to offer Napoleon, but the plan was for God the Father to offer his son Jesus once and for all to give us a clearer picture of who he is and the love he has for us. The same God who invokes fear and is described as a consuming fire in Hebrews chapter 12. That same God gave us rainbows and laughter and sunflowers and and bluebirds and ocean waves and chocolate and kittens and puppies and sunsets and his son. Why? He loves us. This, this is our God. This is our King. Holy, 
holy, holy, high and lifted up on his throne, deserving of our fear and respect and total obedience. At the same time, he is filled with love for us, offering us mercy and grace and hope and joy and peace and an eternal home with him. This is our God. This is our King. And I hope and pray that we would all see him just like Isaiah did. I pray that day by day as we approach his word, as we approach him in prayer, as we live each moment of our lives, may we see him more and more clearly and like Isaiah be able to say, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, until one day we truly do see him for all of eternity. Now, one critique many might have is that we've talked a lot about fear tonight, and that's something we don't like to talk about. We like to favor one thing over another as humans. We like to choose sides. Well, I'm, I'm team love. Well, well, I'm team fear. Well, I'm team faith over here. Well, I'm team works. But biblically, those things do not go against each other. Rather, they work together. If we try and minimize God's fearsomeness and focus only on his love, we make up a version of God that we like better but who does not actually exist. If we try and minimize the love and grace of God and focus only on his judgment and authority, we create a false God. Power and love, judgment and grace, fear and mercy harmoniously make up the complete picture of Yahweh that we see in Scripture. And as we grow to see God more clearly, it should change everything about us. It no longer matters what people say about me. It no longer matters what people do to me. It no longer matters how culture might change around me, whatever Satan might throw at me, whatever dart he might hurl at us through the world. This is our king. This is our God. And nothing will ever change that. Roger mentioned this morning the challenge of the world we live in. Wheat and tares, good and bad. This is a quote Ashley um, introduced me to more than a few years ago um, that I think is fitting for what we're talking about tonight, but also for the time that we as a church are living in right now. We as a community, as a world are living in right now. In a time of uncertainty, in a time of doubt, in a time when we all have questions, you and I, as the people of God, can boldly say, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. Whatever people may do to you, you live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. You are one in whom Christ dwells and delights. The kingdom is not in trouble. Neither are you. Whatever people may say about you, you are one in whom Christ dwells and delights. You live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble. And neither are you. Whatever comes this week, whatever may happen, whatever culture dictates around us, you and I, we are ones in whom Christ dwells and delights. We live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are we. In the words of Roger this morning, and with his fourth point, 
God wins. And if we are with him, we win too. As we see more, our God more clearly and understand the fear he deserves, the love he gives, and the blessing it is to be a part of his kingdom, may we be encouraged to finish what was started. As a way of offering the invitation, let's finish up in Isaiah chapter 6 again and verse 8, where it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah has experienced the power and authority of God on his throne. That was followed up by Isaiah experiencing God's love and grace that he did not deserve. God then determines that he needs something to be done. He has a mission, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. This is the gospel in eight verses. You and I must recognize our place in comparison to God. You and I are tiny little specks on this ball that's spinning around, this shining ball. And one day, I will not breathe anymore. And the earth will keep spinning unless God stops it. I am powerless to do anything about that. I am powerless to stand before this God. I don't deserve to be standing before this God, but one day I will. And he will demand something of me. You and I must recognize our brokenness in order to experience the saving love of God. And as we experience that saving love, we are then propelled through fear and love to serve him no matter what. To boldly say, here am I, God. You have done so much for me. You are my king. You are my savior. Here am I. Send me. When we truly see the king in all his glory, when we see his power and grace, when we see his might and mercy, when we see his authority and love and come to understand our place in this world that he has created, along with all that he has done for us, may we be filled with overwhelming fear and love. And like Isaiah, stand up and say, whatever you need me to do, God, here am I. Send me. This God, our King, is worthy of our entire lives. And the first part of saying, here am I, send me, is giving him your life. What he calls you to do is to put the old man to death, to bury that old man beneath the waters of baptism and rise to walk in newness of life. He walked his son up a mountain to the cross for you. He offers the opportunity for your guilt to be taken away, for your sin to be atoned for, for your brokenness to be repaired. But we must come to him like Isaiah did, in full humility, taking full responsibility for our lost state. We can throw out all the excuses we want. And maybe some people around you will have a pity party for you, and they'll feel sorry for you, and they'll pat you on the back. But when you stand before the king someday, there will be no pity party there will be no excuse you can give him that will matter. And so my plea for you tonight 
is if you are not ready to stand before the king, that you would leave ready tonight. And maybe you've already made the change you need to. Maybe you've already put on Christ through the waters of baptism. But your picture of the king on his throne has been blurred by the world around you, and you've not been living faithfully to him. If we can help you in any way uh, tonight, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.